On May 4, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance hosted a discussion entitled The Politics of the Latino Vote, Immigration and the Run-Up to 2016. The event included insights from Tom Jowitz, Vice President of Immigration Policy at the Center for American Progress, Josian Martinez, founder of Archipelago Strategies Group, and Sophia Jordan-Wallace, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Rutgers University. The event was part of the Ash Center's Race and American Politics Seminar Series. Panelists discuss immigration's role in the 2016 race, Latino voter turnout in the upcoming races and beyond, and potential voter responses to the immigration and identity rhetoric used during this election cycle. The conversation was moderated by Leah wright Rigger, Assistant Professor of Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. The event was co-sponsored by the Malcolm Wiener Center for Social Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, the Hutchins Center for African American Research, the Harvard Journal of Hispanic Policy, and the Latinx Conference. For more information about the Ash Center, visit ash.harvard.edu. Thank you all for coming out on what is the last event of the year for the Race in American Politics series. So thank you all for, for, for being here today, um, especially in the midst of what I assume is Reading Week and Finals Week. So I know it's a, a crazy time, or it's always a crazy time here at the, the Kennedy School. Um, but I'm really thrilled that we get to close out the academic year with a topic that I've wanted to cover um, for a very long time, and we have been trying to do for, for a while. So to get um, these three people here in this room is just a real treat. Um, so with that, um, I want to introduce you all to um, our panelists for today's talk on the politics of the Latino vote, immigration, and the run-up to the 2016 election. Um, the first person that I'll start out with, we're a little bit out of order, but I'm going to start off with Tom uh, Javits. He's the Vice President of Immigration Policy at an, uh, the Center for American Progress, right? Yes. Um, Prior to joining um, the Center for American Progress, Tom served as chief, chief counsel on the Immigration Subcommittee of the House Judiciary Committee, where he devised and executed strategies uh, for immigration-related hearings and markups before the Committee on the Judiciary and legislation on the House floor. He has advised members of Congress and congressional staff on all areas of immigration law and policy. On Capitol Hill, Tom worked for many years trying to fashion a bipartisan consensus around comprehensive Im immigration reform. He holds a bachelor's degree from Dartmouth College, I am also a Dartmouth alum, um, and a JD from the Yale Law School. Um, next we have Josian is that, okay, Martinez, who is the founder, principal, and creative director of Archipelago Strategies Group. At ASG, uh, Josian has led campaigns for diverse clients, including a cultural engagement campaign for the city of Boston, an effort to increase the number of quality schools across Massachusetts, and strategies to increase political access for minority organizations. Now, prior to forming her group, she uh, served as executive director of the Massachusetts Office for Refugees and Immigrants and worked in the uh, uh, Massachusetts State House as Governor Deval Patrick's director of specialized media. A former reporter, Josian has covered Latino communities for El Planeta, El Mundo, Siglo XXI, Color Magazine, and other outlets. She holds an MBA in marketing from Simmons College and a BA in public communications and political science from the University of Puerto Rico. And last but certainly not least is Sophia Jordan-Wallace, who is currently an associate professor of Rutgers University and a Ford Fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. As of July 1st, she'll be an associate professor of political science at the University of Washington in Seattle. She specializes in Latino politics, representation, social movements, and immigration politics and policy. 
Her work has been published in many, many journals, including oh, the, oh, okay, well, I'll say, I'll say one, but the American uh, <laughs> Journal of Political Science and many, many others. She is co-founder and co-organizer of uh, SPIRE, so the Symposium on the Politics of Immigration, Race, and Ethnicity, which is an annual conference of race, ethnicity, and politics scholars. She is currently working on a book, United We Stand, Latino Representations in Congress, which examines the ways that legislators serve the best interests uh, or serve the interests of Latinos across a variety of legislative behaviors and the substantive impact of Latino representatives. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to our panelists, who I think for each of them are going to speak for about five to seven minutes. And then we'll ask, I'll ask some questions of our panelists and then open it up for Q&A. So why don't we start with Tom? Sure. Great. Uh, thanks, everyone. Is this, is this OK for hearing me and stuff? Awesome. So um, this obviously could not come at a better time. Or just thank you guys for having us. Um, it's exciting to be here. Um, yeah, so yesterday, right, Donald Trump wins uh, the Indiana primary. Uh, Ted Cruz drops out of the race. Uh, you know, an hour and a half ago, Kasich drops out of the race. And we now have a presumptive nominee uh, for the Republican Party. Um, you know, why is that significant? Because as we all know, from the very moment Trump announced his candidacy uh, in New York City, uh, he made immigration sort of the centerpiece of that campaign. Um, and that's become a real lightning rod, I think, for the entire conversation. So we should very much expect that's become the thing we're all talking about uh, over the next uh, six months. And um, it'll be an interesting conversation. Um, so I'm approaching today's conversation from the perspective uh, both of my current uh, position at the Center for American Progress and also uh, from my experience for almost seven years working in the House Judiciary Committee um, on immigration issues. And I think maybe the way that I would talk about this is sort of walk through kind of my experience with this issue beginning when I joined the Hill. Um, so in 2009, I, I was working at the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, working on detention conditions issues in immigration custody. And you know, a new administration, we, we uh, Democrats controlled the White House, Democrats controlled the House, controlled the Senate. Uh, with a lot of excitement, I, I you know, went to the Hill hoping to work on an immigration reform bill. And uh, I got to my office and you know, tried to figure out where the bathroom was and figure out what I was doing uh, in, in the job. And about two weeks in, uh, the chief counsel at the time called me down to the office and said, OK, let me tell you what we're actually doing. Um, right? We're actually, and we've been doing this the last couple of months, we've been negotiating an immigration reform bill with a very, very uh, significant group of Republicans and Democrats uh, in total secret. Um, and for the next 18 months or so, we met on a regular basis, uh, two days a week at least, maybe three times a week sometimes, member to member. It's not typically how these negotiations take place. Often it's at a staff level. Um, and we worked on an immigration reform bill. Um, it was the best kept secret in Washington, D.C. at the time. Um, and you know, it, it was a, a very, very serious group of members on the Republican side and the Democratic side. Um, at some point, and I think it was after the, the, uh, uh, the, the ACA, the health care law, was enacted, the politics did not support the, the movement anymore. There, were, there was not going to be an interest from our Republican counterparts to move the bill forward. And so we, we essentially shelved the product. But we basically had a product at the end of the day. Um, for the next two years, uh, after Democrats lost the House, that conversation did not take place. There were no discussions on Capitol Hill about immigration reform uh, during that time. So that brings us to, as the description for this event today said, uh, the election and the GOP autopsy afterwards, in which the GOP announced essentially, look, um, immigration is, we're not going to get policy pronouncements generally, but the one thing we'll say basically is that with Latinos in particular, if you don't get the immigration issue behind you uh, and you continue to, to promote policies, uh, that are you know supporting 
deportation only and not, not possible uh, immigration reform, the next sentence you say won't matter. No one's going to listen to your next sentence, and so you're going to lose out on potentially a natural constituency, the, the only policy pronouncement of that um, time. So that was, you know, that election, even before the GOP autopsy came out, was a, a, a major, major boost to the immigration reform conversation in Congress, including on the House side. The, the day after the election, Speaker John Boehner at the time came out and said, the time for a comprehensive solution um, is, is, is upon us. It's time to work on this. You had Sean Hannity, Bill O'Reilly, Charles Krauthammer. I um, mean, everyone is falling over themselves to say how they've evolved on this issue. We were the new issue you could evolve on, apparently. Um, so we got to work, and we worked really hard in just as the Senate had a gang of eight that was working on a bill, the House had a group of eight. Um, and it was a very serious group. Now it's public, but it was a very serious group of members um, who had very senior positions in the Republican Party, um, as well as some freshmen, Raul Labrador, not freshmen, newer members, um, who were from the more conservative sort of Tea Party wing, who were working together uh, to pull together a proposal. Um, I will tell you, um, we always knew, on the Democratic side at least, and the staffers on the committee, we always knew we had a huge uphill battle um, and the House was going to be a major problem. Um, but I'll tell you, and, and there were a number of moments when it sunk in, this is not going to happen. But the first moment for me came um, about four, five, six months. I can't remember when it was exactly. And I've tried to find this article since, and I can't believe I can't find it. But I used to have hard copies that I would show folks and then take it away because I want to guard it. Um, a National Journal uh, article came out. And it was the front cover piece in the National Journal. And the picture on the front cover of the National Journal was um, of uh, a, a poker table. Um, and it was these white hands pushing in chips. And it said, all on white. Um, and the point of the article was this. After the election, you had this GOP autopsy. And essentially, it was conventional wisdom throughout the Republican Party that in order to have a, a viable presidential candidate, you need to get right on the immigration issue. You need to start moving to the center, wooing Latinos, wooing Asian voters. And that way, you'll be able to build your coalition and become more viable nationally. And that's what drove the conversation for months and months and months. But qu quietly, and eventually not so quietly, there was a counter-narrative building up among the political pundits saying, OK, that's possibly correct, but oof, that's going to be pretty tough uh, for a lot of members of our party right now. I don't think they're really going to be able to move there. So here's another theory, right? The other theory, which is the theory of the missing white voter, is that, in fact, the way to do this is to, on the, on the national scale, right, is to increase white voter turnout and increase white party preference. And if you can do that successfully, that's another way of becoming successful on the national stage. It, it can't possibly be the case, given demographic changes in the country, that that's a good long-term strategy. But that was at least the, the proposal for the short term. And what really, really got me, and what I think made my stomach hurt, frankly, reading the article, was that what they explained was the way you achieve each of those two paths is by adopting diametrically opposed strategies, right? The way you achieve the former, right, is by pivoting to the middle and trying to get better on the issue. The way you get better on the other, the way you drive up white voter turnout, drive up white party, party preference, is by, by adopting those very same policies or those very policies that will polarize people, polarize the issue, and drive everyone to their corners, right? I think that's a really important thing to think about now because what we're seeing in Donald Trump's candidacy is not some eccentric, megalomaniacal billionaire who's just you know, running a campaign without having a pollster on his staff. He's testing out that theory. right? That is that theory uh, in motion. And it started from the very first words out of his mouth during his announcement to run for office when he described Mexico as sending its, you know, not its best, its, its drug dealers and its criminals and its rapists and that sort of thing. Um, so, quick pivot, I'll just say to, to, to that. Here's why I think 2016 is so important. 
um, and why it could be very important for uh, sort of the country's soul and also for the possibility of immigration reform going forward. Um, if Donald Trump wins this election, or frankly, if, if he, if he um, loses the election, but in a credible way, if he, was a, if he ran a credible candidacy, um, that's very important. Right? That's a very significant um, thing. It's, the theory that that's a viable strategy for the GOP, I think, will remain in a lot of corners. And it's a, it's a comfortable strategy for a lot of people, particularly House Republicans, who at the end of the day, because of the way their districts are drawn, um, don't have a very strong personal, uh, personal incentive to try to move toward the other strategy. Right? But if what you get, actually, is a very, very strong rejection of his candidacy, more important than a rejection of Donald Trump as a candidate, I think will be the rejection of that theory itself, right? And so in the same way that Rens Priebus wrote for the GOP after that election, his GOP autopsy saying, you've got to get right on this issue. And then just yesterday, he was forced to eat his words in a, in a tweet when he said, like, hey, GOP, it's time to rally behind Donald Trump. If he gets the opportunity to write not just another autopsy, but an I told you so report, that, that could be transformative, I think, potentially. Um, now, I'll just I'll close on this, basically. I think that will, without a doubt, put the conversation of immigration reform back on the table in a big, big way. Um, that does not mean that it'll be a solution to intransigence in the House. Um, at, at its heart, House members always will have more of an incentive in the short term to not act on this issue than to act on this issue. And whether or not Donald Trump wins, he will nevertheless have exposed to them the danger of pivoting to the center on this. But I think there is, you know, and, and I know this from my own experience of being there for half years, there are members, including very conservative members, who have a real substantive policy-based interest in trying to address the issue. And I think the stage setting that could take place in the election um, could help us expose some of that in the months ahead. Um, but I'm happy to talk about a lot of, a lot of stuff um, on all issues, so I'll stop there. Uh, sure. So um, I guess I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach this from some data. Um, I'm a quantitative political scientist, so I'll, I'll talk a lot about kind of what the, in, in particular, what this election means for Latinos specifically. So I'd be remiss to not kind of caveat this idea that I think scholars have really um, struggled with, as have activists in the public, with this whole idea of what is the Latino vote anyways. Like, what, what is the Latino vote? Um, you know, and I think a lot of this stems in the fact that there is an incredible amount of heterogeneity amongst Latinos, national origin group, generation, class, income level, education level, regional differences. There's so many differences. But what we do know is that, at least historically, if we talk about before President Obama um, ran in the first time, it was generally two to one in favor of Democrats um, is what Latino, the Latino vote looked like. So that is part of the reason why, despite the heterogeneity, uh, scholars and pundits alike would talk about the Latino vote because the two-thirds is a pretty significant group. Talking about a post-Obama era, though, we're talking about over 70 percent and an increasing above 70 percent um, with Obama. And I think in particular in this moment, the reason why defining the Latino vote matters for election 2016 is that because of the level of the anti-immigrant rhetoric, I actually think it will not be surprising if we see over 80 percent or more um, of Latinos voting Democratic in this election. And I think that matters. Um, substantively because it creates a situation, and we've already been talking about this, I think, but it really creates a situation where Latinos as a group are essentially a captured group, right? What Paul Freimer calls a captured group. And now, really, 
are multiple groups actually trying in any real way to cater to them, or is it really one political party? And I think in a lot of ways that puts Latinos in a dangerous position because then they have no other option but to vote for Democrats. But that doesn't mean that Democrats will be that responsive. And I think there's been a lot of turmoil, um, at least amongst activists that uh, I work with and talk with, in the sense that it is not as if having a Democratic president has been totally rosy and things have gone really well, right? Deportations are well over two million at this point. Um, and so I think there are a lot of issues that come from being a captured group. And so that's something I think it's important for us to think about. I think another key thing with immigration is that, in some of my work I've argued this and others have, is that immigration is a highly personal issue. So when we talk about public policies that matter to people, we, we ask the standard question, what, what do you think is the most important um, problem, right, the MIP? And so I think that lots of times this means uh, an issue that you care about, but it's not necessarily one that personally on a kind of existential level affects you. I think immigration for Latinos is is actually exactly that issue, right? And that makes it distinct in the sense that it really can mobilize individuals, but there's this level of personal investment. And so what do I mean by that? Well, so I think there's all kinds of falsehoods about immigration politics and policy, and, and one of which is that most Latinos are not actually citizens or don't have their papers, right? Um, but they do. But that doesn't mean that Latinos don't operate in social networks in which they interact with often with people of various statuses. It's also the case that Latinos are very likely to be in mixed status families, where one person is a citizen, another person might have a green card, another person might be in some other kind of status. And so in this sense, it's very unlikely that you don't have contact through friends friends, co-workers, neighbors, your own family, through people in church, very unlikely you are not in contact with people who might be at risk for deportation and that you haven't personally observed it. And so why does this matter so much? Well, I think some researchers, including researchers here at Harvard, have demonstrated that that kind of level of enforcement can have serious effects beyond changing um, family structures and ripping apart families, where there's actual evidence now that children and individuals can suffer from PTSD as a response to deportations, as a response to raids, right? So in this sense, this really elevates. This is not just like, oh, I really care about this public policy issue. That's on a whole different level, right? And so what happens then is that Latinos really buy in on that issue. Um, and I think that changes how it can um, mobilize people. So th speaking about mobilization, I think another key issue here is that there is a lot of literature that looked at Prop 187 in California to look at um, how in the 90s when that was pushed, how did it mobilize Latinos and how did it lead to um, incredible increase also in naturalization amongst Latinos. And the research pretty conclusively showed that there was a much larger than average turnout, but also it pretty much turned California to be a solidly blue state, right? And if we're thinking about an electoral map, uh, that matters a lot, right? It has the largest number of electoral votes come from that state. And the reason why I bring this up is that I think that scholars right now are talking about, are we going to have the same effect with the Trump effect? Are we going to observe a larger than average Latino turnout? Are we going to, in particular, I want to suggest to you that it may be the case that we may even see the highest turnout amongst Latinas. And the reason why is that the unfavorability rating of Trump amongst Latinos, recent uh, Latino decisions data indicates it's at 79% as unfavorable of Trump. 70% of women also hold an unfavorable position. So this presents a unique opportunity that at that nexus, you may see that Latinas mo might be the most active in turning out um, against Trump. And in fact, you know, I'm happy to talk more about some of this data in the Q&A, but um, 
people are saying that they're um, in a recent survey of 2000 Latinos, the number one reason that people said they were excited and they wanted to turn out to vote, 41% of Latinos said it was to vote against Trump, right? And so that is actually very significant when we think about mobilization. Another point that I think is really important here is this idea that, um, you know, so there's two things going on with the GOP, right? There's the rhetoric, but also the policies. So the rhetoric in and of itself, I think, has the potential, and I, and I don't know if others would agree with this, but I think as far as 2016, it could permanently weaken the party's potential long-term success for the future and their reputation. And if you believe what we say about party branding and reputation, then that's actually quite significant. And I say this because, as you mentioned, all the rhetoric, you know, it's so terrible what is being said, but it's not just anti-immigrant, it's anti-Muslim. Trump keeps doubling down on anti-Muslim rhetoric, right? It's anti almost every group, um, except for essentially whites. Um, and, you know, I think for Latinos, this is really negatively influencing their view, not just of Trump, but of the Republican Party more broadly. And if we back up to the fact that generally about a third of Latinos voted for Republicans, I think it actually really matters if there's a real negative view, um, you know, in the sense that it might have been before that you were choosing between two parties, but you didn't necessarily think the Republicans were harming Latinos. You didn't think they were doing bad things against the group. Again, recent Latino decisions data indicates, though, that 42% of Latinos think the Republican Party doesn't care about Latinos. 31% um, believe the party is explicitly hostile to Latinos. 42% also believe that in the recent history, um, the Republican Party has actually changed to become more hostile to Latinos, right? So it's not just that there's a negative view, it's that they're sensing an actual change for the party. And I think the reason why this really has a, a, you know, a big impact, and we should care a lot about this, is I recently saw, and I don't know how many of you have seen this, but I saw a map that the Washington Post put up that was looking at um, the states that each party has won over like the last 20 years uh, in the general election. And if you look at where um, Democrats have won and where um, Republicans have won, the map is really does not favor Republicans, right? In terms of the states that they win have a small number of electoral votes. And in, and in a lot of ways, I think this idea of having a lot of negativity um, for the Republican Party by Latinos certainly doesn't help that, specifically in cases where states that we think of as Republican states, for example, New Mexico has traditionally gone to Republican, but not since Obama um, was running, you know, these are states that have now become more non-white than white, right? And so while demography is not destiny um, and largely has not borne itself out in terms of what we observe politically and in terms of representation and responsiveness, it is the case, though, that at some point you reach a tipping point where and at some point, if enough places become significantly not white, then it, the math is really difficult to add up on the general scale. And I think that's where your point where the individual uh, incentives as a House member who's running in their district trying to get reelected are really actually diametrically opposed with winning the big map if you want to win the presidency, right? And so when you think about it that way, um, you know, I think that that kind of means the GOP is really in trouble. Um, and this is, it, it really, it, I think it goes beyond the, is this a strategy just to pursue white voters right now in this moment? 
or are we seeing the GOP react this way in part because they're having their own existential crisis about demographic change in this country and what they're thinking about what is going on? Because there is no way, based on math, based on polling, based on rationality, there's no reason why that should be the strategy for something that is not um, ever adopted. Like, it should literally never be adopted because it's just not going to work out. And I'm happy to talk more about the, the math, but... Um, you know, I think that's a good point. I'll leave it at that. I have plenty of other things to say about it, but. Sure. Um, so um, I'm going to speak from the point of view of my experience in, in Massachusetts. Um, I'm Puerto Rican. <laughs> I, I laugh because that means, uh, you know, that, that brings a lot of other, you know, thoughts, you know, when we speak about this topic. Um, but I, I have, you know, the experience of, and uh, I've, I've Work Governor Patrick running his office for refugees and immigrants. Uh, I also worked for many, many campaigns at the state level, at uh, the federal level, at uh, the local level uh, for uh, Governor Patrick, Elizabeth Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren, um, Mayor Walsh, City Councilor Sayana Presley, Michelle Wu. So I'm there in the, trench, in the trenches, and um, I'm going to speak to you from the point of view of an organizer. Um, and more than anything else, right? Um, and so when I think about the Latino uh, population, you know, and, 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 and when we think about the, how the anti-immigrant rhetoric is affecting uh, organizing and turnout, right? Uh, I think about, you know, uh, the, the Latino community as a very diverse community that cannot be put into one single bucket. Uh, and it's very important for any person who is running for office to understand that we're not one homogeneous community. We come from many countries. We have different traditions, different cultures. We speak um, uh, different kinds of Spanish. You know, in Puerto Rico, I speak Spanglish, you know. Um, and, and many people forget that. And they try to, you know, reach out and organize Latinos thinking that we're all the same. Um, and um, in, in Massachusetts, at least, you know, um, we have, you know, uh, 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 I think we are talking about a million new Americans. Half of those, uh, about half a million, are naturalized citizens who could vote. We're talking about 549,000 people that could vote, that could swing any election, right? And we're not adding there 280,000 Puerto Ricans who are natural born citizens who can also vote, right? And so we gotta be careful when, when, when we think about that. When I feel, I feel like, you know, with many of the candidates that I have worked with, you know, we even have to be careful, even when they, you're Democrats, right? Um, um, because, uh, it is complicated to organize Latinos because we're not one thing. And, and with, you would think Latinos will be, yeah, Democrats, we're with you. But Latinos, uh, depending on you know, what generation we're talking about, they have issues with abortion. They have issues with LGBT and marriage equality. Uh, depending on what generation, all the generations will, will have issues with that. And so in crafting materials, in organizing Latinos, you might want to highlight some areas and not so much the other areas of the Democratic Party. But definitely, 
I mean, I was reading the, the autopsy report of the 2012 report yesterday, doing my homework, and I, I, I read this quote from this uh, Tea Party uh, person that if you call someone ugly, don't, you can't expect them to go to the prom with you. Well, if you don't want Latinos here, how do you want them to vote for you? If you want to build a wall, if you're calling them rapists, if you want, how do you want them to vote? And so definitely, you know, I can see how this can help mobilizing Latinos, but I'd be concerned about that too. Mm -hmm. Because if the Democratic Party doesn't put the money, the resources, and the effort to get out the vote, mm -hmm. they will stay home. Mm -hmm. They will stay home and, I mean, Trump could be as bad, as, you know, he could be saying all these things, but at the end of the day, you know, if we don't put the effort to get the, the, vo the, the, the vote out, they're gonna stay home. And in that case, that strategy is gonna work. The strategy is not actually gonna destroy the Republican Party, how many people, you know, right now, yesterday, you know, if you were watching, if you were on Twitter, in Twitter yesterday, you see all this, you know, <laughs> Republicans say, oh, I'm with her now. I'm going to vote for her. Um, and, you know, a lot of pundits are saying, um, this is the end. Um, this is the, the Republican Party is going to lose in 2016, and then it's going to recover maybe later. But if we don't put the effort, if we don't put the resources, if we don't uh, uh, think about, um, you know, you have to start early. You can't wait until, you know, after, you know, this is what happens in Massachusetts a lot of times, right? They wait until after Labor Day to start organizing people. In this case, we can't, you know, if you want Latinos to go to the polls, you know, uh, you have to start organizing early. That's not to say that Latinos are not aware of what's going on. As you know, Univision, Telemundo, I mean, we're, we're pretty good form. You know, we see, you know, Trump every day. In Univision, we know what's going on. Um, um, but um, a lot more needs to happen. Uh, and, you know, and, and the other thing that I have to say is that Latinos not only care about immigration reform, and I ran an office for, uh, for immigrants and refugees here. Um, they care about jobs. They care about access to health they care about access to good schools. I mean, in Massachusetts, and I want to talk about Massachusetts, we, we are in a desperate state of education for Latinos. When you look at Holyoke, when you look at Chelsea, when you look at Springfield, Latinos are not doing as well as their white peers in, in suburban areas. You know, when you look at access to health, 20-something percent of Latinos have no health insurance in Massachusetts. All right, the majority of them Latino men living in Western Mass, meaning Puerto Ricans living in Western Mass. So we care about access. More, I mean, it's not just about immigration. I do, do agree with uh, uh, with Sophia. I mean, uh, if I mean, like I said, if if you don't want Latinos in the United States, you can't expect them to to vote for you. Um, so that is is going to play a key role. And this because of the mixed families, not all Latinos, you know, we know, we probably know someone that is here that have, you know, people have to, that have different degrees of immigration status and we care and we can be solid, I mean, we can feel some kind of solidarity for them. But, you know, 
What about Puerto Ricans living in, in, in Western Mass? There are 280,000 Puerto Ricans living in, in Massachusetts. It's the fifth largest uh, Puerto Rican community living in continental US. And um, nobody's talking about it. Nobody's talking about the fact that Puerto Rico just defaulted again a couple of days ago. Governor uh, Garcia, uh, the, uh, we cannot pay the bonds again. Um, and Puerto Rico is heading to a humanitarian crisis right now. If we end up paying this debt, they're going to have to pay, cut you know, uh, health services, education. They're going to have to lay off teachers. They're going to have to fire nurses. Um, we're hitting a humanitarian crisis, and nobody's talking about that. The only presidential candidate that had a clear, um, not so much clear, but something to say about how to work with the, with the financial situation uh, in Puerto Rico was Bernie Sanders. And uh, it looks like we're not, he's not going to be the presumptive nominee of the uh, Democratic Party. So these are the things that we have to, I mean, that, that if the Democratic Party wants to win in 2016, it cannot take for granted the Latino community. It cannot say, ah, oh, because of Trump, oh, we're fine. No, no, there's a lot more work to do. And, 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 you know, and to be honest with you, a lot of Latinos are skeptical of the Democratic Party because of what Sofia just mentioned. You know, deportations with Obama were the double than when, uh, during the Bush administration. So why trusting the Democratic Party? Uh, so, so those are the questions as, you know, that, those are some of the, the, the you know, uh, the issues trying to organize uh, a group that is so diverse, um, that has so many, you know, political interests, um, and, and I leave it there. So that was great. So, so what we're going to do now, for the the sake of time, and because I know everyone has lots of questions for our panelists, um, is I'm going to open it up to Q and A. And all I ask is that you speak into the microphone. Um, as you are asking your question. So let's go ahead and take some questions. Uh, it seems that some states are adopting a strategy that if you can't win the minority vote, you disenfranchise them, you stop them from voting. How successful do you think that's going to be? And what kind of impact do you think that's going to have on the election? Uh, that's, uh, so I'm not a person who studies history, but I believe deeply in, <laughs> in history, and I kind of admire people who do history. No, I really do. And I think that this is actually, your question is exactly that, right? So if we look at points in um, American history where there's been large change or an increase in rights or a potential increase in the power, political power of, of minority groups in the U.S., one of the classic responses has been in some way to curtail the ability to vote, right? And we've seen that manifest in different ways, whether that's removing the right, never giving you the right, then instituting various ways to disenfranchise through laws, right? And now we just have that voter ID laws, it's the same thing, right? And same as shutting down polling times, restricting access, being very specific about IDs, all of those are ways to disenfranchise minority voters. Anyone who says that that's not is just lying. I'm sorry. Like, that is the sole purpose of doing that. And that will be a go-to strategy, because if you can't change the fact that people exist and you can't remove them from the country and you can't take away their right to vote in terms of make them not be a citizen anymore, then you have to have some other way that you're going to try to do it if you're not going to appeal to them. I promise you it's much easier to actually just 
moderate and appeal. Uh, but that will be a strategy. We've already seen a resurgence, and I think it will get worse. I think it will absolutely get worse. I agree. Um, I, I think, you know, when we look at, you know, voting trends, you know, even though, you know, Obama had this, you know, huge uh, group of Latinos, you know, um, and, you know, Rodney only 23%. Uh, and we still, you know, naturalized citizens vote less frequently than native-born Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, and so all these voter ID laws, you know, that are popping up again, you know, are just ways to intimidate new voters and new Americans to get to the poll. That's just another barrier for, you know, people who have difficulty accessing, you know, the polls mm -hmm. uh, uh, to, to, to try to, you know, persuade them not to, not to go out and vote. Hi, uh, Mike Egan. I'm a National Security Fellow here. Um, so for 10 years, I've been watching my wife um, do uh, comprehensive immigration reform stories for Univision Washington. And for 10 years, I've been telling her, this isn't going to happen. Uh, I don't know why you're doing this story, because it's not in the interests of the, uh, I mean, half the Republicans don't want it, some of the leadership do. but as a political issue, it's more important for the Democrats to keep it alive as uh, something to, you know, make the Democrats, as you said, uh, I mean, make Hispanics, Latinos a captive audience for, uh, for the Democrats. So what I'm interested in is uh, what you think of that and how long you think I can keep uh, winning this uh, argument with my wife about whether comprehensive immigration reform will pass. Yeah, so, um, I mean, that, that is a million dollar question, no, uh, no doubt. Uh, you know, the prospects for immigration reform, like right now, right? Like, are they going to start working on a bill now? I mean, the, no one, no one thinks that. Obviously, um, I do think there are a lot of unknowns. The, the yeah. two, maybe there are three big, big, big unknowns uh, right now. Uh, one big unknown is what happens with the Supreme Court case that was heard just last Monday, yep. um, in United States versus Texas. So, uh, United States versus Texas is a case about this uh, enforcement policy that the Secretary of Homeland Security announced in November of 2014. Uh, to create uh, uh, a, a policy called the Deferred Action for Parents of Americans and Lawful Permanent Residents to allow uh, the parents of U.S. citizens and green card holding children who have lived here for a long time, so long as they have pretty clean background, background, backgrounds and criminal backgrounds and have lived here for a long time, to come forward, uh, pass background checks, and get temporary protection from deportation and the ability to apply for work authorization. Um, there's also an expansion to a pre-existing policy uh, called the DACA policy. Um, so this, these policies, together these policies would affect approximately 4 million people. Um, but interestingly, and this goes to actually to exactly what Sophia was talking about, um, we did a, a study of this at the Center for American Progress. There are 6.1 million U.S. citizens who live in the same household as someone who's eligible for DAPA. Um, and in some states, uh, if you look at DAPA eligible voters, so these are the U.S. citizens who live in those households who are themselves of voting age, uh, they make up a really significant percentage of the 2012 presidential margin of victory um, in those states. So like 80% of Florida's tiny margin of victory in 2012 in the presidential race is made up in 2016 of people who are U.S. citizens of voting age who live in the same household as someone eligible for DAPA. So really significant some of those places. Um, what happens in that case will be, will be hugely uh, impactful, I think, in terms of the storyline for and the momentum for immigration reform in the next uh, next uh, Congress, and and uh, there are a lot of reasons for that. But here's one: one reason for it is that Congress, Republicans in Congress, for a number of years, tried to roll back DACA and tried to block DAPA from taking place. 
on the House floor, on the Senate floor, by pushing amendments and pushing legislation that would prevent funding from going to these policies. They were never successful in getting them enacted. They would never get them enacted by the president. That's not going to happen, right? They then turned to uh, the courts and have filed a lawsuit to try and rebalance what they see as sort of an imbalance in the balance of power on this issue. Um, if the Supreme Court rules, I think, correctly on the law that these policies are well within the Secretary of Homeland Security's authority, then I think those members will ultimately have nowhere else to look but themselves to figure out how to rebalance uh, that balance of power on the issue. And so I think that's going to that's gonna be important. I think the impact of the election, again, will be important. You're right, definitely not in the interest of individual House members in the short term, um, but I think very much so for the National Party, very much so for senators in a lot of these states, not just New Mexico, but Arizona as well, certainly Colorado, Florida, you know, Georgia, North Carolina even. I mean, states that right now are, are, are pretty squarely Republican in a lot of, great, a lot of ways will, will come into play. And I think there is a, a bit of a trickle-down effect on that. Um, those are, those are sort of the two biggest things. I'd say the third thing that we're watching is, there, as we, folks may remember from 2014, there was a large number, there were a large number of Central American children mm -hmm. who came in 2014 requesting protection from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Um, those numbers went down somewhat in 2015. They're on pace now to be as high, if not higher, uh, in 2016 than they were in 2014. I think there'll be a large conversation this summer about that and the proper way of responding to that. So there are a lot of unknown pieces here, I think. Um, but at the end of the day, there's going to be a demographic reality to immigration reform. Um, and so one last thing I'll just say is, having been in a lot of meetings with a lot of people in sensitive meetings in, the, uh, in Congress, certainly on the House side at least, I never got the sense, in all honesty, that Democratic members or Democratic leadership were sort of holding on to the issue because it was, it was an important issue. I, I, really, I yeah. really didn't get that sense. Members were there on both sides of the aisle in those conversations because they wanted to get to the right policy at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that's a really important point is that if we think about, I guess it depends on what's your lens on CIR, right? So when I think of why per still pursue CIR if it's not very likely, well, I think there's, so one caveat is that just because you're pursuing CIR doesn't mean that you're not also pursuing piecemeal legislation. At times, the main strategy has been CIR only and you haven't seen piecemeal that's trying to happen at the same time, but not always, right? Um, but I think the second and more important point here is that I view the pursuit of CIR, even if it's hopeless in this exact moment that it's not going to happen right now, as the like morally like obligated thing to do, right? That we are talking about millions and millions of people who are, for all intents and purposes, active members of the U.S. society, contribute in all kinds of ways. I won't go at length about how many millions of dollars in taxes, et cetera, but really contribute in so many ways, socially, economically, educationally, in so many ways, but we just deny any ability to change that status. If you think about it that way, then it's always worth pursuing CAR and continuing that, even if it means that it will take a long time. And I think for activist point of view, it's always going to be worth still trying on CR. You can't just let it go, right? Because it's not going to change. Um, and I think one important caveat is some recent research that I've done has actually shown that even though we think about conservatives as not necessarily supporting um, a pathway to citizenship, um, some recent analysis that I did, um, kind of looking at experimental, doing some experimental work, we actually found that you can move conservatives pretty significantly to support a pathway to citizenship, uh, if it, depending on how you frame the issue and what you pair it with. So for example, if you pair it, and this was, we looked at the DREAM Act, if you pair it with um, serving in the military, which there's all kinds of political reasons why you might not want to, but I'll 
caveat those, but if you do, for conservatives and for Republicans and for people who score high on racial resentment, you can actually shift their support in favor of a pathway of citizenship by 20 to 25% and get them from below 50% to up to 60, 70%, right? And so in that sense, um, I don't think it's hopeless. I think there's just issues that you're going to have to do. There are actually, and I think Tom has already said this, there are Republicans who do, in the Congress, elites who do want comprehensive immigration reform. They do want reform. I think there's a little bit of a disjuncture where people misestimate if their conservative um, constituents will support them. But I actually think there's new evidence showing that under certain conditions, they actually are fine. And if you look at national public opinion data, it tells us that more people than not think it's important to have a way for people to come out of the shadows and adjust their status. It's, it's amazing. The exit polling from the GOP primaries have been, um, you know, time after time, from the most conservative, you know, sector, section, section of the electorate, they're, they're, they're supportive of uh, path to citizenship, path to legal status for current unauthorized immigrants. So it, it is, there is a disconnect there for sure. Thank you for joining us. Um, so I was wondering whether or not some of the speakers could talk about the sort of like Trump impact on local uh, downstate, I'm sorry, down ballot elections um, in terms of the potential impact of uh, Latino voters, uh, whether or not they'll turn out. Um, and also, if you could potentially speak a bit about uh, the CDC's sort of like description of Puerto Rico, um, the impending outbreak of Zika, and the likely um, impact that will have on congressional support for actually doing something about public health um, and the challenges they're going to face there, that would be great. Thank you. I, I, I can, you know. To start with um, how the Trump rhetoric is going to affect the down ballot, like, in, in Massachusetts, we also have a couple of ballot questions uh, uh, that will be there with you know, the presidential election. There's the marijuana question. There's the charter school uh, cop question. Um, and there's some local uh, races, too. Um, especially in districts of color, right? You know, um, there's the, the East Boston, um, East Boston is very well known for to be a, a Latino community. Uh, that district, uh, the way it's been drawn is crazy because it adds different, a lot of different communities. But particularly, the, the largest part of that district in Boston is, is East Boston and it's Latino. And it, they will have to go to the polls again in November. You know, Latinos are going to go to vote, not just because of the anti-immigrant rhetoric from Trump, but also if the Democratic Party adjusts their marketing outreach strategies and com outreach and communication strategies to get them out, yeah. right? And that doesn't mean translating everything to Spanish. It means having policies in place that are actually good for the Latino community. And it's not just about local immigration uh, policy. Mm -hmm. It's not just about driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants. It's not just about in-state tuition. Um, it's about access 
to services that are essential for people. Um, like I said, you know, Latinos also care about good schools. Kids, Latino kids are having the worst results, the worst performance in schools. They want to see their kids succeed. They're not having access to quality schools right now. And you know the reasons for that could be multiple, right? You can argue that it's lack of funding. You can argue all the things. But what parents care about is that they don't have options and they don't know where to send their kids to, right? Um, and that's the future for them. You know, We care a lot about that. I mean, they are issues with healthcare, as I mentioned, health services, you know, they face significant bar uh, language barriers, you know, and cultural barriers. Um, so if the Democratic Party is able to craft policies that go beyond immigration, but also talked about the day-to-day -day things that they care about, and if they are, you know, I mean, it, it, uh, there's a lot of skepticism, to be honest with you. A lot of broken promises, you know, from the Democratic Party to the Latino community. Uh, but, you know, I always think that it's better to organize on the positive than in, on the negative, right? It's so difficult to, to, to drive people to the polls based on fear. Mm -hmm. It's better to, to, to try to organize them on the positive side. This is, you know, what the opportunities that are in here. Um, in terms of Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico is a colony of United States. I mean, I have to say, we are a territory of United States. The uh, citizens of Puerto Rico are, are treated like second-class citizens. Uh, they can't vote for the president in Puerto Rico. Just, let me just explain. Puerto Rico, residents in Puerto Rico cannot vote for the president of United States. They can only vote in primaries. Right, and but they cannot vote in the final uh, election, so we have no vote. We have a representative in Congress, but that representative doesn't have a vote in Congress. So they're to say, "Hello, I'm here," but nothing to do with any kind of vote or decision. Um, Puerto Rico doesn't have any power over its economy. You know, the laws that go back to the uh, the 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 nineteen the 1900s, the John Act. Everything that comes to Puerto Rico needs to go first here and then comes back to Puerto Rico and we have to pay taxes over that. So we don't have control over, over our own economy. It's been a tax heaven for multiple corporations. Yeah. You know, uh, before you know, uh, this multinational started going to other countries, Puerto Rico was the place where they experimented how to be global. Right, and they were all brought to Puerto Rico on this this tax exemptions, and then when they were able to move to other countries and fight cheaper labor, they left Puerto Rico. And this is, you know, what's going on in Puerto Rico is consequences of, you know, our status, our status where we are not a state, and we're not an, a country. You know, we're just in the middle, and I call it colony, the last colony <laughs> in the Caribbean. Um, with Zika, you know, it, it's just gonna get worse uh, if we don't find a solution to the, if Congress is unable to restructure the debt uh, right now, it's just gonna get, get worse because where is the Puerto Rican government gonna find the money to pay 
the stern of that. Where is the, are they going to find the money to pay the bonds that they need, uh, all, all the money that um, has been invested by many families? I mean, we're talking about this could potentially create a, an economic crisis because many of the working families, you know, have invested in these mutual funds that are that that you know are the ones who bought the municipal bonds. So how is Puerto Rico going to pay this? They're going to have to cut services. They're going to have, and this is happening already. Plus, Puerto, Rico's, Puerto Ricans are leaving the island by the thousand every day. And they're going to Orlando, Florida. They're going to Western Massachusetts, where guess what? They're facing the same you know, poverty and issues and lack of access to education. So, I mean, it's just going to be worse. Uh, quite clear in, in my question. Um, with the impending outbreak um, that Puerto Rico is going to face, the CDC, I think a few weeks ago, said that uh, they project that 20% of the island is going to contract Zika uh, within the next year, and up to 80% of the population will contract it before the outbreak is over. Um, will that serve potentially as a tool for mobilization um, among the wider Latino community um, in particularly in places like New York State, uh, like Florida, like, like, like ma here in Massachusetts, where you have that um, Puerto Rican community, but will other Latinos also act as advocates since Puerto Ricans cannot vote in this election? That, that's an interesting question. You know, I would love to see Latinos uh, working uh, together uh, for this. Um, at the end of the day, if Puerto Rico are if Puerto Ricans are going through this crisis uh, and nobody's doing anything about it, you know what does that mean for the Latinos living here? Yeah. Okay, I mean we're the same, we come from the same roots, right? Um, I love to see that. I think it could help to mobilize. I don't know if I mean there. The the issue right now is that there are many groups right now trying to organize Puerto Ricans and they meet nationally, but their main focus right now is to get Congress to pass, you know, uh, to restructure, to help us restructure the debt and at least be treated as the race, uh, as the rest of the states. Puerto Rico cannot, uh, as you know, uh, cannot file for, for, uh, for back bankruptcy like the other states have done. Um, it would be, yeah, it, it, that's a great idea. You know, I guess, you know, I would bring it to my meeting, uh, Alianza for Puerto Rico. <laughs> 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 uh, but right now, what, what we are trying to do is to raise awareness. You know, among the same uh, Puerto Ricans, you know, here in the island, because they're uh, very unaware, you know. And, um, and I don't blame, you know, the Puerto Ricans who are coming here and not totally tuning into what's going on because there's a lot of pressure right now. You, you have other needs, you know, that you have to meet, you know, you have to pay rent, you have to, you know, and you come here with nothing, you know, it's hard to tune in into and just become active. Um, but that is a perfect idea, thank you. First of all, thank you for coming. My name is John Gibbs, I'm an MPA student here at the Kennedy School. My question is uh, about Trump, like many other questions here. Um, so when you go back to June of last year when he said he was going to run, no one took him seriously. Mm -hmm. And you would never guess a guy with no experience in politics, pro-gay marriage, pro-abortion, pro-raising taxes on the wealthy, totally non-Republican positions, 
is now number one on the Republican side. And you look at how this happened. He came out last summer and said, build the wall. And those three words are what put him up to number one. So that tells me, whether I like it or not, there's a huge amount of people in the United States who when they hear that message, they love it. And just because I was kind of bored, I had a lot of time in my hands, I watched a rally of Donald Trump. Uh, I think it was in uh, Indiana. And everyone started shouting, build the wall, build the wall. And there's like 25,000 people, there's thousands of people waiting outside. It's a huge amount of momentum. Virginia, he got twice the turnout of their previous record for the GOP primaries. So it tells me that there is a huge amount of momentum and excitement for this message he has, which is based on build the wall, that's so powerful it can overcome the fact that he's pro-gay marriage, pro-abortion, pro-raising taxes, won't touch Social Security, core Republican issues. People will ignore it just because he has those three words. So how do you reconcile this desire that Paul Ryan and Rance Priebus have, which is to try to adhere to some level to the 2012 uh, autopsy with the GOP base, and I believe also lots of independents and moderates who are not Republican, but who are saying, well, this guy at least uh, supports a woman's choice to choose and is like, okay, I'm gay marriage, so I think I can choose this guy now, even though I can't pick other Republicans. He's gonna pick up some of those people too because he has this, at least in the minds of the people that support him, powerful message of build the wall. How do you have a conversation with that side? Because there's so many folks that are there that's constructive. It, it seems like right now, there's, there's the camp that we have here, then there's a build the wall camp, and there's no possibility of, of coming to the table and agreeing on basics. And they've said, as Tom was sharing earlier, um, well, the Latino vote is 70% you know, Democratic. You keep bringing in more, they can keep voting Democratic, it's losing strategy. Might as well get the guy who's gonna build the wall and stop the trend from happening and try to reverse it. That's the way to save things. Those people are, I think, in that argument. So how do you have a conversation with that side? Thank you. A couple of quick, quick thoughts on that. There's a, I, I, I think everyone's going to want to jump in probably, but um, one observation is, right, it's not just the, the folks at the rallies who are yelling, build that wall, right? We, you're all seeing that from 12-year-olds in soccer games in yes. Wisconsin and in basketball, you know, high school basketball games when, Trouble. you know, students who Rhetoric support matters. a white team basically are screaming at, you know, students from a largely uh, diverse team basically saying, Donald Trump, build that wall. So I think... There was actually a really, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna, it's sort of obvious, but I'll, I'll betray sort of my, my thoughts on this a little bit. But we had a great piece that um, one of our uh, research associates uh, wrote um, that was looking more at, at Islamophobia and a lot of the anti-Muslim rhetoric that we're seeing now. And it was, the piece was called, I think, something along the lines of uh, when public figures normalize hate. And I think something really, really upsetting is happening right now with uh, the fact that you have this theoretically credible candidate uh, but, but truly a national figure um, using the kind of language that I think has historically been, to, for the most part, sort of pushed to the edges. And what that does, that does a very, it does a very, very different and unique and uh, uh, disturbing thing, I think, to public discourse when it's used in that fashion. Um, because I think it not, not only energizes folks who would be totally comfortable saying that anyway, but I think it also makes it okay for folks who wouldn't have said it, might have been personally embarrassed to say it, might not even, might not even necessarily have thought it to start thinking it and saying it. Um, so I think that's one thing we're seeing culturally. Um, I, I guess the, the main thing I'd say that what you're saying is um, time will tell a little bit, right? That, that is what this election's about, right? This election will be a referendum on that exact issue, I think, in a lot of ways. I think there's no question it's a large number, it's a disturbingly large number for those of us who, you know, think that there is a more civil way of thinking about and talking about policy on immigration issues. Um, 
But first of all, even within the GOP primaries, including those that he's winning, you're seeing a majority of the GOP primary goers saying they support uh, path legalization for the unauthorized. That's one thing that's really interesting to see. Um, and the second thing is, you know, at, at the end of the day, basically, you know, what what are? It's a large number, but is it going to be large enough? Right. If it's not going to be large enough to take a majority of the electorate, um, or if it's not even going to be large enough to come, you know, terribly close to taking the majority, right? If it's a 10-point margin, 12-point margin at the end of the day, um, that's a lot of people certainly, but it'll still send a very strong message, I think, to certainly the national party um, and also to national leaders in the party who are going to have to think about how they talk to some of their folks in their base about, you know, next steps. And so I think we'll see what happens, but it's very, very uncertain. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I think one of the things that's really hard about this sort of build the wall rhetoric, and I think for people like all of us who do work on immigration, I think is that, um, you know, we know that the relative amount of actual political information amongst individuals in the United States is very low. We know that it's hard to get them to update their opinion. And in fact, when people are confronted with um, hard evidence that the position that they hold is actually a fact, a fact that they think, um, is correct, is actually incorrect. Sometimes it results in them digging their heels in on that position, even though they've been presented. So build the wall actually, I think, presents exactly this issue, which is the whole rhetoric is just fake. I mean, it's really fake because we are at the lowest point of, we, it is a decrease on undocumented immigration. The flow, it has substantially changed in terms of what is the country of origin. So actually, Asian um, country sending is actually much higher now than it has been at other times. But more importantly, the main way that people are getting over and, and having their papers is not by crossing the border in the South. And so a wall, putting aside who will pay for it, how it will work, all the actual, like, how do you do it, that's not even the way people are doing it. They're overstaying visas. So the whole thing is just, it's, it's mind-boggling how fake it is. But immigration as an issue suffers, I think, from a lot of what I would call myths around immigration. Same way undocumented people don't pay taxes. You know, they're using all the welfare, even though that's, that's been excluded forever now for a really long time. There's so many things. And so I think that's one of the things that's really hard is because you're not wrong that people are motivated by this. But it's completely divorced from actual reality and facts. And so it's so frustrating. But I think on the other hand, you know, the point that you raised is correct, which is that I think it's very disturbing that people are motivated by this. But if you're a cynic like me, I don't think people are more racist than they always have been. I think that what has actually happened is that forever we had a system of explicit racism. Then we went to implicit racism, where there were social desirability um, norms to try to not seem racist, but it, people were still actually really racist, right? And I think that where we're at now, and I actually heard my, my new colleague talk about this on an interview, is he said that the only thing that he's happy about, re Trump, is that his use of explicitly racist, sexist, and other thing, rhetoric. It's actually brought to the forefront the fact that, man, we still have so many damn race issues in this country, and it is really just, it is terrible. And the country has to actually grapple with the fact that this isn't just a small number of people, it's so many people. And it's also across groups. That's the other thing. That's the new phase, is the next ugly phase is confronting the fact that there's also um, racism between groups, right? So I will say for the Latino community, 
we have such a big problem with like anti-black like racism, right? We can't even acknowledge that there's such a thing as Afro-Latinos among so many communities. It is so bad. So in there are so many issues with colorism and racism that, you know, for me, I think at the least we're having a discussion about this. All I can go to when I think about what how to solve it, we'll see what happens in the 2016 map. I'm like, election? But I just go back to that map that I looked at at the Washington Post, and I'm like, okay, at least these states, the current system we have, say what you will about whether it's Democratic, the Electoral College, the current map, enough people live in places in the states that will not vote this, like, we probably will not end up, like, the likelihood of a Trump presidency is relatively low. Now, it could happen if groups turn out, though, on the levels that they did in 2012. I don't think it's that likely. But how they'll resolve, I don't know. If Republicans lose, maybe they'll actually come around. Okay. Hi, thank you for being here. My name is Norma Torres Mendoza, and I'm a second year MPP here. I work, uh, this summer I'll be working to mobilize youth in Texas to vote, but I worry that what's getting them to vote is fear. So how can we capitalize on this moment to make sure that we're creating civically-minded Latinos and Latinas that are going to vote for generations to come when we hopefully won't have a Donald Trump to fear? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, going back to the build the wall, right? You know, that could be used, you know, again, you don't want to mobilize against uh, uh, using fear. I don't, I don't feel it's the best use, you know, of communication strategies and marketing strategies. When you were working in politics, you learned that you never, that you never use your opponent's words in your lit. You know, you never do that because you don't. You're not using your strategies to advertise your opponent. That's that's a Roma, uh, rule of thumb that you know we use in campaigns. Um, I think to to mobilize the youth, you know, you really have to present role models. Mm -hmm. You know. You really have to 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 tap into the bright spots that we do have, right? You know, and 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 you know the if if you want to mobilize people against the build the, the wall, then you find people who represent the very best of the Latino community who are you know um, who are contributing, you know, who are in positions, you know, youth like to see themselves, you know. In, in positions in the future, you know? So there are leaders out there, you know, that should, in, as a matter of fact, should be considered as a candidates for vice president right now, you know, um, that, uh, that are doing well. And I think that if the Democratic Party taps into Julian, the Julian Castros of the world or the, or the people who are out there, the Latinos who have, you know, uh, over, come barriers and are at leadership positions right now and they tap and they actually provide access to that because that's another thing latino representation <laughs> right yeah. when we looked at and I, I go back to boston and massachusetts because that's my expertise right but you know when you look at latinos are not represented in 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 the positions of power neither are women right mm -hmm. in boards and commissions right in, in Boston, there's a huge representation gap of, of Latinos. In Massachusetts, too, and in uh, United States as well. So I feel like, you know, one way to do that for the Democratic Party will be to tapping into uh, Latino leaders mm -hmm. and having them here and say, you know what? This party really represents 
the Latino uh, uh, community that we want to govern. That would be a strategy, you know, that I will use. Um, and, and, and yes, you know, create a contrast, right? The, the use of contrast in, in, in political campaigns is, is important too. So here you have Republican Party, here you have Democratic Party, make the decision, right? So, um, and I think it's not organizing on the negative, it's just drawing a, a line between this is what this party offers and this is what we offer. But then you have to keep the promises, right? And, 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 and be a party of integrity, right? And, and do what you say you're gonna do because then it's gonna be worse in the next election cycle. Then Jorge Ramos will be talking about the and broken Jorge Ramos will be talking every night. About <laughs> you know, and also I wanna say something about, you know, this build the, you know, uh, Republicans are so outraged right now. Oh my God, Trump and all this rhetoric and all of that, but they could have, I mean, I have to, I agree with President Obama on this. They could have stopped him way before when he started questioning Obama's citizenship, right there and then, excuse me, we're a party uh, that, you know, that represents, you know, a growing majority, Latinos and, and, and immigrants, but they didn't do so. And now they're saying, oh, wow, this is, you know, stop Trump, but they could have done something before. The, the only one to add really, really quickly on that, um, oh shoot, now I'm forgetting it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think of it. Okay, hands hands up. So I think we have time for maybe two more questions. Um, so let's we'll start right here. Uh, hi. Um, my question is about your your intervention right now. It's uh, what happened if Trump's um, vice president is a Latino? Uh, do you, do you want to suggest a person? Uh, yeah. I have no problem ripping people up, but. <laughs> sure. We gotta find a better Latino. <laughs> no, I mean it, it's it's going to be um, uh, it's gonna be interesting. I don't I don't. I mean, it would be like, well, I go back to the same Tea Party quote from the autopsy report. You know, if you call someone ugly, you can't expect them to go to the prom with you. Right? Si lo llamas feo, no puede ir al baile contigo. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, I would have a hard time believing, you know, in yeah. that. But they could be Latinos, you know. Uh, especially, you know, they're, you know, I, I talked about my experience organizing for, for Cockley, you know. I didn't talk about, you know, how Baker won here being a Republican, you know? Um, that is a strategy we, that, you know, what Baker did here was going after those Latino values, evangelical values in, in some of the cities. He, he actually went after all the votes. You know, previously, in Republicans will say, oh no, I'm gonna leave the, the this, uh, Democratic ballots alone and I'm just gonna go after the uh, suburbs and I'm gonna go, but he went after all the vote that he could get, you know. He failed because he didn't win any of the uh, communities of color. Um, but, you know, what he did was that he had a, a message for this uh, suburban areas, like saying, oh yeah, talked on immigration, welfare, and then he would go to communities of color and talk about access and talk about, he was, uh, you know, he changed all of a sudden. So I would be more afraid of Trump doing that. Mm -hmm. 
of of just of just using two di uh, different messages and micro targeting people that way mm -hmm. and going this way and say oh yeah 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 and he's already doing that flip flopping you know yeah. um but that's what worked for baker here no aside for the fact that uh uh five truck was also in the race and he won mm -hmm. se 70 thousand votes uh but but he did you know uh tailor his message depending on who he was talking to so sorry on the on the civic engagement question and sort of how to mobilize voters in Texas, um, she's still here actually. Yeah, sorry. Um, you know, again, this, this goes back to Texas again, the the, the USP Texas case as well, and what happens to the Dapadaka case. I, I don't want to go through all the permutations of, of possible results in that lawsuit, but likely come the end of June we'll have a decision. And you know, if there's a decision which the Supreme Court five three or six two uh, allows these programs to go forward, um, you're going to have a lot of really great stories, uh, following up on what you said, of people basically, you know, parents who, who are going to rise up. And it's, it's a victory that the community really can claim as a victory yeah. that, that they, they, they won the policy in the first place, they were integrally involved in winning the case in the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. and now the job is to defend the victory. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's going to be a positive mobilizing factor. Very good, um, very and then good. frankly, if, if the, 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 the other outcome, possibly, there are a lot of outcomes, but uh, another possible outcome is if you get a split decision, 4-4, uh, four, four, then you know, frankly, again, it's the it's the intransigence of the the Republican Senate uh, to not nominate and confirm rather a, you know a, a ninth justice that could make the decision. In that kind of case, you already have the fact that 26 Republican uh, state governors and attorneys general were the ones who motivated the lawsuit in the first place. And so I think again, the idea of looking at the folks who have been jeopardized as a result of this lawsuit mm -hmm. um, is something to think about. And the fact that had 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 they done their job and 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 confirmed a ninth justice. We might have seen a different outcome in the case. I think there are really a lot of factors that will come out of that that aren't motivated by fear, but motivated really by sort of accountability and protecting, protecting in, in the case of a, of a win, uh, I think a well-fought well -fought victory. I do want to say something on the, um, on the Latvino VP is that I think that, well, first, some of the most likely people that he would have gone to that are Latino, that are conservative, that are prominent enough, have already said that they won't do it. now. I don't know if Susana Martinez is going to go back on her word on that, but she said that she's not. Um, I also think that um, there are, there is no evidence right now, since we did have two Latino conservatives running um, for the presidency, they did not have higher than average support um, amongst Latinos. We didn't see higher turnout amongst Latinos. And actually, when we look at support, it's still pretty low. And so while you're right that on average, the research tells us that when there are Latino candidates, there is greater mobilization of Latinos. And on average, Latino representatives do tend to equal more representation. I think Latino voters can discern, though, that Latino conservatives, by and large, especially if you're looking across a host of key issues, right, immigration, economy, jobs, labor, health care, um, you know, looking on all these issues, the Republican Party isn't offering platforms on those issues, and the, the rhetoric and the positions that they hold are not actually, they don't line up well with Latino interests when you look at public opinion, and I think Latino voters will be able to discern that. So even if it's a, you know, a Latino face and a Latino name on the ballot, they're not going to vote for Trump while both of them are going to be spewing this this crazy anti-Latino, anti-rhetoric, you know, anti-immigrant rhetoric, I don't think it's going to work, right? Now, might it have a mobilizing effect for whoever's the Democratic candidate? Possibly. I mean, I, I could imagine if it's um, Julian Castro or Tom Perez that it could be huge. Depends. 
So we are, we are out of time, but our panelists will be around for a few more minutes. And I'd love to invite all of you to help yourselves um, to whatever food is left in our reception. Um, I just want to give a round of applause to our panelists. Thank you so much. And thank you. And, and thank you all for coming. I also, just because this is the last session of the year, um, I would love to thank um, the Ash Center for making this event, this series possible. Uh, the Wiener Center and the Hutchins Center for co-sponsoring throughout the year. And then a really great team, people behind the scenes, or sometimes in front of the, uh, in front of the scenes, including yeah. Melissa, Dan, Michael, who is somewhere back there, yeah, and, and Tim, who, who couldn't be here today. So thank you all for coming, and please help yourselves um, to as much food as possible. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, on, on your point about um, your colleagues,